Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, you might want to circle or underline that phrase, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion... For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Father, thank you so much for continuing to lead us through your word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us the things of Jesus and pointing us and directing us to him time and time again. We pray in this brief letter, Father, that you will give us illumination, a revelation of the Lord, not simply to what you were saying to Titus and to the people on Crete, But Father, what you're saying to us here and now and today in our lives, give us, Father, open hearts to hear what you're saying. And Father, we pray for for the change, for the sanctification that only comes by the work of your Spirit in our lives. We recognize it is wholly your work and it is a holy work. And we pray for these things and we ask, Lord, that we would not just have ears tickled, but hearts changed. In Jesus' name, Amen. So a new letter, and we're going to move through this one quickly. Uh, We'll be through it by the end of next Sunday morning. How do you deal with a bunch of Cretans? Really, that's the subject matter here in Paul's letter to Titus. Handling a whole bunch of Cretans. Now, don't be confused. There are Cretans, and there are Cretans. That is... There are Cretans, C-R-E-A, or E-T-A-N, 
Cretan with an A, which is someone indigenous to the Isle of Crete. And there are Cretans with an I, C-R-E-T-I-N, and that is slang for someone who's stupid, insensitive, or vulgar. Not the same word. Cretanism with an I is a medical condition, this is where that word came from, of hyperthyroidism, causing a severe stunting of mental and physical growth is caused by iodine deficiencies. The term cretin, or cretin sometimes as it's pronounced, was coined by people in the French Alps in the uh, 1800s, early 1800s. And it was from the Latin, this is going to, this shocked me. Cretin comes from the Latin Christianos. Christian. Why is that? Why did they? It was a way that the people, believers in the Alps, or the average, the common Europeans in the Alps, emphasized with kindness a victim's basic uh, humanity. So they would talk about someone as Cretanus, as Christianos. And they would refer to someone who was dwarfish or someone who was stunted mentally or whatever because of this, this such, such low iodine in the diet and because of this medical condition that, that was re- realized and pretty profound in that region of the world. And they referred to these people, these victims of such a thing as Cretans, Christianos. Today, the slang has just come to mean dumb. And you've probably used the word or at least heard the word and not really thought much about it. Ah, that guy's just a cretin, you know. Well, that's where it comes from. I read a perfect example this past week of cretinous thinking I'd like to share with you. Uh, it's just too easy a target, and I couldn't resist. Dan Brown, the author, author of The Da Vinci Code, declared just this last week, our need for God has become unnecessary. He's got a new book coming out, so he's wanting to sell copies, apparently. But in a speech on October 12th at the Frankfurt Book Fair, Brown suggested humanity no longer needs God, but may, with the help of artificial intelligence, develop a new form of collective consciousness that fulfills the role of religion in society. He cretinous. He said... Our need for that exterior God that sits up there and judges us will diminish and eventually disappear. Mr. Brown, God does not exist because of human need. We need God because He exists. We have a great need, but we did not create Him in that need. He's the one who said, I am who I am. Exodus 3.14 So we are... Because He is, I am. That's an easy way to think of it. The Lord precedes us. The Lord is, I am. He is God. It it reveals so much of, of, of the senselessness of human thinking. Even to say something like that exterior God. Well, that tells you something right there. If God is for you exterior, well, you have not met Him yet. If if the Lord is uh, one who sits up there and judges and that's all you understand or know about God, then you have not met Jesus. And the truth is, Dan Brown's intellectual folly is in viewing God as exterior, distant, impersonal, and invented. In other words, a fabrication of human need. Brown might say Christianos are cretins. And you know what? He'd be right. Christians are Cretans. What do you mean, Rick? 
Paul said in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so where does mankind's desire for God? Let's, let's accept for a moment, and it is true that we have a need for God. That's not why He exists, but the need is there. Why is the need there? What is it in us that desires to know or, or longs for a higher being, a, a greater existence? And where do we get with that even the sense of eternity? I see, Bible students know this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has made everything appropriate in its time. He, that is God, has set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He's given us the sense of eternity and He's landed us in this place of a human conundrum where we know there's more. We hunger for more. We want more. But we don't always know what that is. And that's the first step in acknowledging and recognizing God. That's the, that's the beginning point for a human being to start to realize, I'm, I'm not good on my own here. Something's lacking, something's missing. I need more. From the most intellectually disabled cretin to the most brilliant inhabitant of Crete, eternity is in the heart. And is in all of our hearts. And the desire for God is there for every one of us. And by the way, the eternity of God and His promise of it is the singular theme of the second pastoral letter of Paul to Titus. Listen to this, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago at the proper time manifested His Word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. It is one of Paul's most elaborate opening statements, but it hinges on the hope of eternal life. That's the key right there to the entire letter that Paul writes to Titus. That's the focus of the letter. The hope of eternal life. Now there's church organization in this. There's administrative principles here. And there's other teachings for this, for this pastor on this large island. But the theme, the heart of Titus is the hope of eternal life. How do you know? Let me focus you quickly on the two biggest passages, at least theologically, in the letter. Down in verse 13 of chapter 2. Note this. Looking for, he says, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The blessed hope. The hope of eternal life. The blessed hope is actually that hope that the church will be called out. Caught up, brought home. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Or down in chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's it. And that's the value right there of this little three-chapter letter. The hope of eternal life. And he's talking to Titus and he's telling Titus, bring that hope to this people. The hope of eternal life is the focus. 
And those are the key passages. Chapter 2, verses about 12 and 13, 11, 12 and 13. And then chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And we're going to come back next week and and really chew on those and pick them apart and, and unpack them and think them through together. This morning, we're just going to cover chapter 1. Just just chapter 1. One full chapter. The year is A.D. 63. Chronologically, as I said, this falls right on the heels of 1 Timothy, either written right at the same time or very quickly after 1 Timothy. And, and we say after because when you look at the two letters side by side, 1 Timothy has indications of being first. There are some repetition in Titus that comes out of 1 Timothy. But very, very close together in that same year, one letter sent off to Timothy at Ephesus, and this letter, of course, sent to Titus on the island of Crete. Listen, we're going to be through this so fast, if you blink, you're going to miss it. So I want to encourage you, if you'd like to get the full teaching on Titus, be here Wednesday night. Because we're going to do it this morning, Wednesday night, and next Sunday, and we're done. After that, I'm going to be taking a little medical leave, if you will, for two or three weeks. And uh, Jake is going to be doing Sunday mornings, and Les is going to be covering Wednesday nights, and, and you guys will have a great time, and, and I won't. But that's okay. We'll, we'll, just, uh, we'll all be all right after that. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, continuing now. And let's move through this chapter together. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. I love that. In fact, of all of Paul's greetings, that's my favorite one. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts, though he's mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, uh, twice in the pastoral epistles, and of course, this letter is directed to Titus as a co-laborer, a compatriot of Paul's. What's interesting is, due to the Greek construction of this verse, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, if you read it in the Greek, you would see that his name here is literally Tito. Tito. Few people are aware of his early work with Motown and the Jackson Five. I'm just trying to keep my teaching germane, so... Thank you very much. You know what's interesting is you will never find Titus out on the Sea of Galilee fishing for marlin. Yeah. Or singing Michael, Row Your Boat Ashore. He's not going to do that. I know. There's one more. But if I do that one, I will be jackieing the entire teaching. So, Titus. Titus, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Thank you for getting all that and rolling your eyes at the same time. As for Titus, Paul writes, he is my partner and my fellow worker. My partner. Titus, his name means pleasing. It could mean honored. From the Greek, they think it's connected to perhaps the Titans, and so it means of the giants. And you could say Titus was a giant of the faith, especially on the Isle of Crete. He served with Paul as a courier, as a co-laborer, a comforter, and ultimately a church planter with Paul on Crete. Crete is the largest and the southernmost of the Greek isles. 
And tradition tells us that when Titus came down to Crete and began the planting of churches, there's a possibility that he joined Paul in Nicopolis uh, for a brief time, but back to Crete. And tradition says he lived out his years there and died on the Isle of Crete at the age of 92. A faithful church planter ended up being bishop overseer of all the churches on the Isle of Crete. Probably not as young as Timothy, but Paul does refer to him as Titus, my true child. But he's not Paul's child by age or by progeny. No, he's a child by discipleship. It's highly likely, just from the way Paul says this, that he led Titus to the Lord. That Titus was born again because... Paul introduced him to Jesus. And so Paul lovingly refers to him as my child, my true child in a common faith. One more thing to know about Titus, and I think it's pertinent here, is that he was an uncircumcised Gentile. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. And it's a unique partnership because you have Paul, who was a Hebrew among Hebrews, and Titus, who's pretty much a Gentile among Gentiles, and the two of them working together to bring the Gospel to Crete. And some of the things that Paul will mention to Titus and call out in this letter, specifically those of the circumcision and Jewish myths, well, Paul has every right to talk about that from his background. And writing that to Titus then, Titus could deal with those people on Crete because of his association with a Hebrew among Hebrews, with one who has full knowledge and understanding of Judaism as Paul would have. So he is Titus, my true child, and I like this, in a common faith. Not common as in ordinary, but common as in shared We have a shared faith. Think about that. We this morning here have a shared faith. It's truly what draws us together. It's a marvel to me in the church that we are not drawn together by affinity, by personal likes, uh, by popularities or, or associations, business, any other thing. We are drawn together because we have a commonality. A common faith. Common is the word koinos, meaning mutual or shared. Of course, it's the root word of koinonia, which is where we get the word fellowship. We have a common faith. We might might not share any other thing, but we share Jesus. And He is everything. And He is the one who draws us together and has been drawing Cretans together, Christianos, Together for 2,000 years. Acts chapter 2 verse 44. All of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. We share a common faith. A common hope. A common love. And it's a commonality that is anything but common. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Of course, Paul says that in every letter. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Sometimes he varies it by saying Christ Jesus our Lord or Jesus our Savior or Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's always God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord and not one time in all of the letters of Paul does he include the Holy Spirit. It's always God the Father and Jesus our Savior or Lord. Well, that's interesting. 
Because the Holy Spirit is the author of all these letters. He's the one who inspires it all. Why is He not mentioned in the greeting? Because He never gives Himself credit. The Spirit of the living God is not in it for the credit. The Spirit of the living God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is always to glorify Jesus. If Jesus is glorified, the Spirit is present. If Jesus is lifted up, you know the Holy Spirit is at work. If Jesus is not the focus, but the Spirit is, there's something wrong. Because the Spirit doesn't glorify Himself. Jesus said He will glorify Me. John 16, 14. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. He won't exalt Himself. He exalts Jesus. And again, it's how you always know the Spirit is the one at work in a fellowship, in a gathering of believers, because Jesus is worshipped and praised and talked about and, and lifted up and honored. Now, unlike First and Second Timothy... Paul immediately gets down to church business with this Titus. Very little personal communication, in fact, throughout this letter. There are a couple of things. In fact, simply him saying, my true child in a common faith, is pretty sweet. You know, that, that's a great personal interaction right there between Paul and Titus. But the letter gets down to business. And there are three elements in this first chapter that I want to cover this morning and consider, and I'll give them to you right now so you can track them through with me. The first one is he'll deal with a chosen authority. A chosen authority. Second, he will talk about a cretinous gluttony. And that's interesting. Some things Paul says here, and you may have caught it going by where you just raise an eyebrow and think, really, he wrote that? He said that? A chosen authority, a cretinous gluttony, and finally, a childlike purity. Well, let's consider these things. A chosen authority first. Verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And that right there is why at the bridge we don't elect elders. We don't vote for elders. We don't do it by popularity. It's not the bridge has got talent. You know, call in. You know, put on the pressure. Mention your tithes and offerings and get your guy in there. That's, that's not how, how church authority works. That's not biblically how I see it. That, that shepherds, elders, overseers, bishops are appointed. And they are called. And so Titus is given several characteristics to look for in these appointments. Now you might note that verses 6-9 through nine are very similar, often taken uh, and compatible with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. Those are the two kind of go-to sections that people look at when thinking about elders in a church. But note this, the list is slightly different because the situation is different. Paul wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, and there were certain things going on there. In fact, you may recall, in Ephesus, the traits of the elders were specifically related to flushing out the heresies, clogging up the leadership. Flushing that which is clogged. I knew what I was saying. Dealing with heretical teachings and false teachings that were starting to arise even from among the leaders. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, this is what a leader looks like. And you be sure of this among the leaders there in Ephesus, because if the leaders are teaching heresy, you got a big problem. How are you going to get out of that one? That's what was going on in Ephesus. And so Paul writes, Timothy, you might say to drain the swamp. 
writes to Titus here on the Isle of Crete because, listen, the churches are young and, in fact, don't have leaders yet. And Paul and Timothy, you might say, they kind of got in there and went barnstorming around this rather large island, planting fellowships in the major locations. And then Paul had to go elsewhere. Titus stayed on, but Paul is saying, now you need to appoint elders in each one of these places. You need to establish appointed authority, chosen leadership. Godly leaders, because on Crete, the threats were external, not internal. Now the threats were there. They needed godly leaders, people who understood the word and could teach the word, so they could do two things, exhort and refute. They they could exhort the believers and they could refute the corruption that was trying to seep in to the church. So the two lists, 1 Timothy and here in Titus, are unique to the locations and to the situations but they're broad enough to apply to every church across 2,000 years. So I absolutely believe it is legitimate to look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 when considering who is to be called as a leader in a church fellowship. But understand the differences in the lists are because you have two very different situations. Verse 6, he says, If any man is above reproach, well, that's the same. The husband of one wife, that's the same. Having children who believe is a little different. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Okay, think about it this way. He begins with the validation of the home life. Validation of the home life. A good look at a man's home life will tell much about what you need to know about him as a leader. What's going on at home is going to affect or be revealed in what's going on in the house of God as well. And so as in 1 Timothy, an elder should be above reproach. That is not blamable. Someone who lives a life, is not perfect, but someone who lives with the intention of not being called into question about the things that he's doing. He should be husband of one wife, literally as we've talked about. It's the same phrase Paul uses with Timothy, a one-woman man. That is a man who has shown himself to be faithful. But, this is unique for Titus. Paul here says, his children must be believers. It's not what he told Timothy. He must manage his household well, manage his children. But but here, his children must be believers. So, people take that and say, oh, okay, so an elder has to have believing children. Right? Right? Why are we so quick to make policy out of everything? Why do we grab certain verses and say, well, you see, because he tells him here that he must have believing children, that you cannot be an elder unless you have believing children. My friends, understand this. That these passages dealing with elders, Timothy was not told that. Titus is. So all of a sudden, now you have churches on Crete where the responsibility of the elders, they had to have children who were old enough to to be believers... But not in Ephesus. So the very same time in history, you've got some churches where the leadership has believing children, and a church, at least one, that they didn't. Is that a contradiction? Is it a problem? No. It's character traits. You're looking for character in a leader. It's more than a checklist. And this is something that that we draw into religion so easily because we look for checklists. This is not a checklist. Check each box, and if you can check each box, 
Well, you know what? There are times when every one of these boxes look a little shaky in my life, with the exception perhaps of dissipation. (laughs) Don't make policy look for the person. Look at the heart. If a man's children believe, he has already proven himself to be one who handles well the Word of God. And that was critical on Crete against that corrupt cultural climate. You needed teachers. Look for men who have children. They've already taught their kids. That's who you want. And then he ends verse 6 by saying, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, so not a party animal or a rebel. My grandmother was 84 years old when she got a new car. She had moved out to California and was, was living nearby, about two miles away from my family's house, and, and bought a new car. And my brother Ron and I went out and got a bumper sticker, put it on the back of that car, and it stayed there the rest of her life, and it said, Party Animal. <laughs> we thought it was hilarious. But it got funnier and funnier every time she drove up. It was just like, you know, here comes this car, party animal, and out gets my 84-year-old grandmother. So she couldn't have been an elder in Crete. Um, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so you got the validation here in verse 6 of the home life. Then in verses 7 and 8, he goes through vices and virtues. Five vices, six virtues to look for in the heart of a shepherd. Listen to them. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, God's servant, not self-willed. So it can't be about you. Not quick-tempered, so not a knee-jerk. Not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. I will point this out. I pointed it out in 1 Timothy. There are those who disagree with me. That's fine. But the phrase, not addicted to wine, literally it means not near wine. So the implication here is not someone who drinks. Not pugnacious, which is what happens when you drink. Not fond of sordid gain. Okay, so those five vices, you don't want to see that in someone who is shepherding in a church fellowship. But, verse 8, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now you can think through those words if you'd like to and parse them out and consider their meaning, but they're pretty straightforward, and even in the Greek language, in terms of what Paul is talking about, the type of person You don't want these vices, you do want these virtues. But then you come to verse 9, and it holds the biggest difference between the two lists, from 1 Timothy 3 to Titus chapter 1. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, an elder should be able to teach. Here he expands the thought in verse 9 and says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, that is for believers, and refute those who contradict. So in this list you have the validation of the home life, you have vices and virtues, and then finally you have the valor of a good leader. The valor of a good leader. This is not someone who's just able to teach, someone who's running a small group or or has a home Bible study. This is somebody who is able to exhort with the Word of God and to refute false doctrine with the Word of God. Which I think is highly significant. Especially, again, on Crete, 
where you've got young fledgling churches that, that need people who can teach truth and hold back the heresy. Get this, holding fast the faithful word. I really like the way that is written. Holding fast. Imagine holding tight onto the sword of the word. It paints this great picture of a sword in the hand of valor. Which is why I say he's, he's got to have the valor of a good leader. Listen to this story. This is back in 2 Samuel 23. And talking about the mighty men of David. Names one, comes to name uh, a second man. In verse 9 of 2 Samuel 23, says, After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. Check this out. Israel ran away scared. But this Eleazar, son of Dodo, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. They had to pry this guy's fingers loose. This Eleazar held so firmly to his sword and fought so valiantly in this battle that his hand locked up. That can happen, you know. I mean, it's an actual condition. Some will call it trigger finger. Others, you might call this sword grip. I don't know. You know, His hand locks around the handle of the sword. Truckers will get this on long hauls from, from gripping the steering wheel. The tendon sheath begins to spasm and, and, and suddenly their hand gets locked in position. And that's what the Bible describes that happens with this Eliezer. And it tells you that even the son of a dodo can hold fast the sword of the word. (laughs) Now, clearly I'm joking, but, but there's some truth to this. And that is you don't have to be a mental giant to hold fast to the word of God. You can be a cretin and still cling to God's word. You can be dwarfed by other great intellect out there. I'll give Dan Brown this. The man's an intellectual. He is well studied. His history is flawed. But, but he's a thinker out there. There's so many great thinkers out there. And you might say, I can never, you know, refute someone like that. Yeah, you can. Because you got the word of God. He doesn't. He's denied it. But you have the greatest book of intellectual insight and wisdom ever written in the history of humanity because it's not written by humanity, it's written by God. And so hold fast the Word. Don't go looking for it other places. Don't go getting other people's interpretation of it. You hold fast the sword of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Show me another book that can do that. So hold fast the Word. What if my hand locks up? Praise the Lord. That's what you want. And when was the last time you got sword grip from holding on to the Word of God? It's not just for those with the gift of teaching. Also, it's not just for elders. This is for every follower of Jesus Christ. Hold fast the faithful Word. Philippians 2.14 
Paul speaking to everyone, the Spirit saying, literally, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. So Paul wants to prevent heresy. And in this description of leadership, the best way to do it is send your valorous swordsmen to head it off at the pass. Send them out ahead of time so that it can't get into the church because you know what? Corruption's coming. Corruption's always coming. Corruption has been coming for 2,000 years. I have never been in a church fellowship where corruption didn't try to make a showing. Everywhere you look in this world, corruption, you push back, it's like weeds. You know, it just keeps coming back, season in and season out. You know it's coming, so hold fast the faithful word. Know the word of God. Be prepared. Secondly, a cretinous gluttony, and this gets fascinating to me because Paul writes some things. Paul's written several things that I never would have written. But when you study and understand the context, you realize why he did, and why he said what he said, and why the Spirit would inspire such words. Watch this, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Remember them? Verse 11. Who must be silenced. I really like that. Because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Let me just say, you read that phrase, who must be silenced, and those who are about free speech are shocked. No, we must not silence anything. We must always allow free speech. You know, some speech shouldn't be spoken. Frankly, there are some words that ought not be used. There are some things that are just offensive. Oh, so Rick is not for free speech? No, I didn't say that. I am thankful we live in a country where we have the freedom to speak God's Word. And I think it's sad that we live in a country that also fights for the freedom to speak heresy, lie, deception, and brutality. So there are some things, in my opinion, that ought to be silenced. And by the way, when Jesus comes, we ain't going to have free speech anymore. We're going to have the freedom to worship Him in spirit and in truth and in person. And we're going to be thankful for that. If you want to be an idiot, that's fine. (laughs) See, free speech. So he he says, all of this going on, it, it wasn't a problem in Ephesus. That is, the circumcision were not as big a deal there, but clearly on the Isle of Crete, we meet it again. The circumcision. Paul talked about them back in the letter to Galatia and the Galatian churches, chapter 3, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Paul, man, he is fighting back against the notion that once you've come to faith in Jesus, now you have to be religious. Now you have to go back to Jewish law. You have to keep all of these laws and restrictions and regulations and rules. And Paul says, no, that denies grace. 
And by the way, it's the grace of Jesus Christ that allows me not to use free speech in a way that hurts other people or shames myself or my God. Grace frees me to be honest and open and speak things that are fitting to holiness and purity and righteousness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The circumcision have made their way down to the Isle of Crete and they're trying to corrupt the churches there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. It was a problem in Philippi. Paul writes, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. They were in different places. They were in Galatia and Philippi. And now somehow, these legalists made it all the way down to southern Greece. These Judeo-Christian, Torah-keeping, circumcising legalists. (laughs) And there's a problem with them because they bring a total misrepresentation of the gospel of grace. Listen, it's easy to do. Churches do it all the time. That's why I mentioned earlier when we're looking at the the characteristics of someone who would make for a, a good leader, a good elder in a church, when you take that and immediately make it policy as in a checklist, you miss the heart. And we are so quick to make policy on things. And, and we think that procedures, that's what we need. We think rules or regulations. You know why we do that? Because they're easier to follow. Give me the list. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I'll do that except when I'm feeling rebellious and decide to do something else. Which is the other problem. You know what Jesus said? He didn't say follow the rules. He said follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Watch me. Do that. Know me. Act that way. Follow me. Verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Okay, Paul, you're writing a letter to Titus on Crete. And you just said something that was an offense or would be an offense to everybody who lives on Crete. That what? So you're saying that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? Is, is that the point? Is Paul an anti-Cretite? Or an anti-Cretanite? He's quoting Epimenides. 600 B.C., a philosopher slash prophet of the Greek people, Epimenides wrote this ancient adage, and it has an interesting history. The reason why he said this, and listen to it again, (laughs) all Cretans are are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The reason it was written, we believe, comes from the fact that the people on the island of Crete claimed that their island possessed the tomb of Zeus. If Zeus was a god... What does he need a tomb for? The only God I know who ever needed a tomb just borrowed it for three days. And at the end of those three days after being crucified, Jesus resurrected from the dead. But it was almost a a cultural joke that that claim was made and people are like, oh, those Cretans. Tomb of Zeus. Zeus doesn't have a tomb. They're always liars. Lazy. Well, they're on an island, you know. No offense. A southern island. I mean, you can just imagine kicking back in the Greek Isles, right? 
lazy, gluttony. And so, so this was spoken long before Paul. And what Paul's doing is he's just kind of picking up on it. He's just using this same phrase. He's borrowing an old cultural stereotype. For example, like all Australians are thieves and criminals. You ever heard that? That's a cultural stereotype. It's not true. But it's spoken because 163,000 or so convicts from Great Britain were sent to Australia in the 1800s to colonize it. So at one point, there were an awful lot of convicts sent down to Australia to be colonizers of the land, and so that stereotype got to be spoken, all Australians are criminals. Well, they're not. It's like saying all Washingtonians are tree-hugging liberals. I just had three trees chopped down on my property, so... What up? (laughs) It's like saying all blondes are dumb. Now, I don't think that's fair. Um, Although, I know, right? This is treacherous. What are the what are the six worst years of a blonde's life? Fifth grade. Okay. <laughs> we went through so many blonde jokes at my house last night. We were just cracking up, and I, I told a couple that I was going to share this morning, and my family just went, "No." I'll share one that they said I shouldn't tell you. What do you do if a blonde lobs a hand grenade into your lap? You pull the pin and throw it back. (laughs) What do you do if she or he, let's be fair, throws a pin into your lap? Run, she's got a grenade in her mouth. Okay. Okay, listen, listen. I, I Honestly, I mean no offense, and of course we're kidding around. Cultural stereotypes are just that. But listen, they're only true if we make them true. You understand? You're, it, it's only true if you make it so. Growing up, a Cretan did not make you a liar, a beast, or a glutton. Acting like that did. If you act like a liar, well, then you're a liar. You know, if you act foolish, then you're foolish. If you act like a tree-hugging liberal, well, then you are. But it's what you do, and it's how you present yourself. And Paul is simply saying here, get this, if the shoe fits, the testimony is true. All Cretans, one of their own said this, are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Who's Paul talking about here? He is talking specifically about the false teachers, the deceivers, the circumcision, those who are trying to bring corruption into the church. And he's saying, this this fits. Because of their very behavior, because of what they are doing. And continuing on in verse 13, he says, this testimony is true, and for this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And so the best reproof is the truth. It's the best way to bring both exhortation and refutation. And you don't go out there trying to hammer someone with your Bible, beat them over the head, or prove how stupid they are, how cretinous they may be. That's not how you do it. You just teach the truth. And I have found over the years 
that God's Word, the truth itself, reproves us. There are times where I don't even know it's reproving. I don't even know someone is taking it as personal rebuke. I mean, Debbie will tell me. But I don't even know that, you know, there's someone who will walk up and just go, I'm I'm just so convicted of, of what you talked about this morning. And I will have to say, really? What did I talk about? What I say that because that particular thing was not convicting for me, so I didn't even see it that way. Reproof is best tendered by the truth, the word of God's truth. It's not about putting other people down. It is not about getting the upper hand. In fact, note this: it is about gaining and maintaining a sound, healthy faith. That's what he says. Reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. There's a positive outcome for it. Paul's not saying, just show them how stupid they really are. Show those liars they're liars, and show the lazy that they're lazy, and show those gluttons that they're gluttons. You know, just show them how dumb they are and and shame them. Uh Uh-uh. You never shame people with the Word of God. God is not into shaming, by the way. That's not His nature. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. If you feel shamed... Weighed down by a load of guilt. You know what that is? That's sin in you. That's your own stuff. Jesus bled and died to remove that shame. To cleanse and purify and say, let me take that off of you. I'll wear the shame. I'll be the offense. Don't let it be you. So in teaching all this, after dealing with a chosen authority and even a cretinous gluttony, the Spirit now, through Paul, calls for a childlike purity. Verse 15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. Do you know anyone like that? They just don't get it. I mean, popular culture. They just don't understand the innuendo in the bad joke. They just don't even know who the latest artist is on iTunes or Spotify. They're just unaware. You mention a name like Harvey Weinstein, and they go, Was he affected in the Napa Valley? Is that, you know, Weinstein? <laughs> They're the ones that the culture calls gullible, but God would call pure. To the pure, all things are pure. They just don't get wrong. They're not looking for wrong. They're not accustomed to wrong. They're not aware of wrong. They just know what's right. And they're happy to know what's right. A childlike purity. Half of the blonde jokes I told last night, my kids were just going, I don't get it. And I'm like, well, that's because... No, they're not blonde. (laughs) Um. Those of you who know my kids are African American. Okay, so do you know anyone who is clueless about these things going on in the world that, that, you know, Paul even says there are some things we shouldn't even mention. There are some, some sins that we shouldn't even talk about. Well, someone who's pure, everything's pure. They, they, they don't see it. And Paul puts it this way in Romans 16, 19, and it is something not to laugh at, it is something to aspire to as a follower of Jesus Christ. I am often saying, Lord, would you just wash my mind clean of the things that I've heard just in the news this week? I don't want to know this. I don't want to be aware of these things, of what people do in their their sin. i got enough trouble with my own. 
Purify me, Lord. And Paul says in Romans 16.19, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the word innocent there is literally simple. I want you to, when it comes to evil, I want you to be simple-minded. Be simple. Don't, don't be aware of it. Don't think about it. Don't, don't watch things that, that, that increase your knowledge of evil. Don't listen to things that expand your understanding of sin. Don't read things that make you more world-wise. You don't want to be world-wise. You want to be Jesus-wise. And so he says, focus on what is simple. Again, not being simple-minded, but being pure. Purity is the issue. Let me quickly read this to you. Matthew 15, verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to Him and He said, Hear and understand. It's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Now, one of the things I love about Peter is he was simple. You know, he missed a lot of things. He didn't get it right up front. He, he wanted to. And he had the, the boldness to ask. And, and further down in Matthew 15, 15, Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. <laughs> that doesn't even sound like a parable to me. What enters into the mouth, that's what defiles the man. But what proceeds out of the mouth... Or what enters in is not what defiles the man, but what proceeds out, that's what defiles the man. And Peter took that as a, as a deep parable. Well, it is. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth, these come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. As Paul now says to Titus, to the pure, all things are pure. You know what's wonderful about that? When God takes hold of your heart and makes it pure, things begin to brighten up. The world looks a little better. Oh, not the sinful world. I'm talking about the created world. I'm talking about all the blessings of God. The good that God does in the world. You see that more often when He purifies a heart. You're more aware of godly things. You're more excited about holy things. The more God purifies the heart, the more when you hear words like righteousness and holiness, you go, yeah, yeah, I want want that. It, It excites you. The more God purifies the heart, the more you find yourself waking up on a Sunday morning going, I can't wait to be there. As opposed to, oh, this box is getting harder to check every week. And if you're a pastor, that's really a problem. God purifies the heart. Whatever we take into the heart, whatever we bring into the mind, listen, we develop a taste for that. If it's evil, we will develop a taste for evil. If it's sinful, if it's dark, if it's, you know, disgusting, we'll start to like how that tastes. We'll want more of it. We will hunger and we will thirst for it. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. That's the glory of God here, gang, is that as we hunger and thirst for it, there is no lack. You want righteousness? 
He's got more righteousness than you can possibly take in in a lifetime. And you will always find yourself satisfied as you are being purified. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They'll see God. Now, we will see God literally out of the flesh when we are in our glorified bodies before the Lord. We will see Him as He is. 1 John 3, verse 2 tells us. We'll see Him. But you know what? I think there's something to it even right now. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think right now. The more pure my heart, the more aware I am of what He's doing. The more I hear Him when He speaks. The more I know it's Him at work. The pure in heart. And of course you may remember from 1 Timothy 4 verse uh, 4, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with gratitude. It is sanctified by the means of the Word of God and prayer. In other words, God doesn't create spiritual impurities. We do that. And we do it really well. Who among us is truly pure? You know, I read a verse like, To the pure, all things are pure. And my immediate reaction in my heart is, I wish that was me. Because the truth is, not all things are pure in my life. Not all things that I look at or think about, I don't have 100% pure thoughts. Wish I did. I long to have that kind of purity. To the pure, all things are pure. You know what? Solomon wisely asked, and I think we could agree, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? The answer is no one. I can't say that. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Are we better than they? Says Paul in his Judaism. Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And he goes on for six more verses. I mean, man. Can you get the point? Yes, Paul, I get it. None are righteous. Why is that such a constant theme in the Bible? You know, I think it's because the moment we forget our sin nature, we either become smugly rebellious, or we become worse, self-righteously religious. Oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as she is. I don't have the problems that he has. And we have just lied to ourselves because without Jesus, none is righteous. We cannot generate our own purity. The harder you try to generate your own purity and make yourself righteous by your acts and your deeds, the more you fail at it. In fact, even the word pure, when he says to the pure, all things are pure, it's the word katharos, where we get cathartic. And the idea is that of being purified, being cleaned out, being made pure. And Solomon gets it when he says this, Proverbs 22.11, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. I have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. 
the lily of the valley, and Him alone I see all I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. So to the pure, all things are pure. Would you be pure? It's a work of Jesus. And you come to it by faith in Him. You trust in Him to do it. You call upon Him to cleanse you. You allow Him free access to your heart to do the purification. And as He purifies, suddenly your life becomes far more pure than you ever could have made it on your own. But, Paul says, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, the opposite is true. Nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That is strong language. He's not saying people are worthless. What he's saying here is that these defiled, cretinous liars... Those who would reject the truth, those who would rebel against the purity of God, he's saying they become unqualified for any good work. Why is that? Well, you can get hired at Papa Murphy's. You can work for Jeff or for Josh. And you can go out and get your food handler's license because you have to have the food handler's license to be able to handle the food. And you can sneeze into your hand and make a pizza and nobody noticed. Just Josh's store. Just Josh's store. Okay. Or or Joel. I was going to tell a story on you, actually, about working at Papa Murphy. Should I tell it? <laughs> I think it was, I, I remember this. It was a few years ago, and you were new at Papa Murphy's. And they, they came up with a new regulation where you had to wear gloves to make pizza. Because it makes people feel better. And actually, it's less clean than washing your hands while you're making the pizza. But whatever. And so, uh, Joel had his gloves on, and, and he kept rubbing his nose. <laughs> Do you remember this? Nope. You don't remember this? Oh man, I was standing. Tyler, do you remember it? Okay, yeah, see, see? I just remember being in the store and he would go like this and three of the employees would go, Joel rubbed his nose, he rubbed his nose again, you know? And he'd be like taking the gloves off and washing up and putting the new gloves on. You know, here's the thing. You can go out and get your license and you can defile that just by getting something on your hands. And that's the issue. If you are filthy, you're going to transfer that filth to whatever you touch. I'm no longer talking about Joel. I'm not saying he's filthy. He's clean. He's showered. You look nice today, Joel. No, you you transfer whatever you have, whatever's on the matter that's on your hands, and you're going to transfer that filth to what you touch, to what you eat, to what you serve, or to what you teach. And that's the issue here, and why Paul is so strong on this, is there are people going around purporting to be teachers of this, you know, legalistic circumcision, of this Judaistic Christianity. Where did they come from? You know, I don't know this for sure, but it's interesting that among all those who were present in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, if you look at the list, Cretans are on the list. So there were people, there were Jews from the Isle of Crete who were at Pentecost and witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit and saw what happened. And I wonder, and it's complete surmise on my part, if they didn't make their way back home to Crete and start teaching this new version of Judaism, this Christian, Judeo-Christian thing, but maintaining all the Jewish principles and the law, and they got a foothold on Crete. It's possible. 
Somehow that teaching got down there and Paul said it has law attached to it. It's got sin and death attached to it. And if you have this kind of defilement, you're just going to pass it right on to somebody else. He mentions here both mind and conscience. Man, to the unbelieving, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The mind is that sense of that reason, the, the perception. The conscience is the ability to sense right from wrong. Both get defiled. The conscience was a necessary, get this, a necessary result of rebellion. What do you mean? It's what kicked into high gear when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know if this is exactly right, so please don't quote me on this, but I think it's interesting. I wonder if God didn't know that when we rebelled against Him, we would at least need the knowledge of good and evil to survive. Don't eat of that. But boy, when they did, conscience kicked in. And at a minimum, for, for humanity even to go on living, there has to be the sense of what's right and what's wrong. What were Adam and Eve before they ate of the fruit of that tree? Pure. They were pure. They were simple. They were childlike. What was it that Paul called Titus? My true child in the common faith. And that's what Jesus wants for us. That's His desire for you and for me. That we would, not childish, but that we would become childlike. That we would become trusting and, and believing, knowing our Father, being about the things of our Father, trusting Him to get us where we need to be. That's what Jesus wants. Simple, childlike faith. He said in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. you got to be simple. you got to be innocent. you got to be pure. He will purify you. But embrace that simplicity of faith. John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. So don't be a Cretan. Be a child. Be pure and innocent, a true child in the common faith. Let's stand together. In John chapter 1, verse 12. John wrote, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To become children. True children in a common faith. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You now. And in this time of uh, of the service with two things that we desire to see accomplished. The second of which is to share in the commonality of communion together. And we will do that. But Father, the first thing is we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would minister now to our hearts and lift up Jesus before us. 
We pray, Father, that You will bring purity to this place. Father, I pray that this would be a free opportunity, a free environment where people can come to Jesus. And Lord, I do ask if there is anyone among us this morning who has not believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that Your Spirit would lead them to that decision today, to pray that prayer. Father, I pray if there is anyone who has not been washed in the waters of baptism, that You will lead that person today to make that decision and to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. Father, I pray if there are any brothers or sisters among us who are feeling defiled, perhaps have a sense of the the filth of, of the world or even of their own sin, of our own choices, of our own failures on us. Father, I pray that You will draw us to Jesus this morning to once again realize that in Him we are made pure. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We got four tables, four corners of the room. We'll have people at each one to pray with you. This is, you know, we do this every week. And I, I want to encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity to pray and to seek the kind of purity we've been talking about. It, so many of these opportunities go by. So often people don't take the chance, take the risk of coming to the Lord, praying with a brother or sister, or accepting Jesus for the first time as Lord and Savior. Don't wait. To the pure, all things are pure. You want to have bright eyes and clear thinking and see the world in the way God wants you to. You want to be ready for Him when He comes at any time? Then come to Him. Hear Him call you. Receive forgiveness. Receive purity in the name of Jesus. This is your opportunity to respond to Him, whatever your need is this morning. Please come.